If you guys are new tonight, uh, my name's Kesselon. I didn't introduce myself earlier when I came up and did announcements. I am the high school intern here at Brookside. I work with Brad. I get to teach every once in a while, and they decide that, you know, I finally know enough. No, I'm kidding. Uh, if you look behind me, you'll see that we are starting a new series. This series uh, is titled My Trial, and it underneath says, A Study in the Book of Romans. So uh, before we go into this, just a little recap, we're going to be delving into Romans for about the next four weeks here as we're going into it. But before we go into this, if you guys don't have a Bible, definitely grab one. We're going to try to go through a little bit of background for the book itself, and then we're going to delve into the lesson as well for tonight. So if you don't have a Bible, grab one. If you don't have a note card, grab one, because we're going we're gonna to go through maybe a little fast here. Uh, before we begin, if you guys would bow your head and pray with me here. Dear God, I just I thank you for the opportunity we have every single week to come here into this church and worship you, God, that we can come together as brothers and sisters in Christ and our Lord and Savior, and that you give us strength and that you guide us to what is right and what is good. I just pray tonight that you do exactly that, that you show us through your word what is right, what is good, that you bring us closer into a relationship with you and give us even more faith, Lord. I just pray all these things in your name. Amen. So like I said, we'll be going through a little bit tonight, starting off a new series. Uh, this is actually the very first time I have actually ever put together a series. Brad wanted me to do it at least once this year, and so I decided that we go through Romans. This is a book that I enjoy a lot, and if you guys have never read through it, it's an awesome book to read through. So before we go into it all, I just want to do a little bit of an introduction here for it. Um, how many of you drove here tonight? I know like underclassmen, you're like, ugh, the pain of my high school existence, I want to drive. The rest of you all that drove here are like, yeah, freedom. But how many of you drove during rush hour today? A few of you, a few of you. How was that? Awful. First word, awful. How, how, are, the, how are the other drivers on the road? Horrible. They don't know what they're doing. They're super bad, right? Even though maybe they're like 40. Is 40 old? Man. Man, I'm almost, I'm, I'm past halfway to old now, guys. Ooh. Uh, my point here being this. If you've ever driven in rush hour, if you have a car, it's extremely frustrating. Because you're stuck in traffic, you're trying to get somewhere, and no matter who is around you, for whatever reason, they just seem to you like an annoyance. They just seem to you like someone who's trying to get in your way, who's not going the speed limit, and you immediately start thinking to yourself, man, what kind of person is in that car? You start thinking in your head, why aren't they just a better driver? And oftentimes, you'll sit there and you'll, you'll say, man, I'm such a good driver. If only these people were drivers like I am. And you can get angry, you can get frustrated, but the end all point to this, guys, and I am just as guilty as this. I'm super guilty of it in my car driving down the interstate going just, come on, if you would just get over half a second faster, I could get to my destination like a minute faster. And I, I judge the person very quickly based off of these small assumptions. But in reality, I don't know anything about the person that's in that car. It could be a mom who's got their daughter in the back seat and... You know, they're going home from preschool to see their father and to eat a meal. And they're going through hardship with finances and money. But I don't know any of that. And so instead, I just think about, you know, that one tiny little bit that I do know. You're in my way. Please move. And I get very afraid at them, even though I don't know them. And I have 
condemned them their entire existence just because of this one tiny little thing that I know. Another example, uh, at least from my own life very much, that I think even if you don't drive, your siblings, your brothers and sisters, maybe even your friends, your friends could be like this too. Uh, They could say or they could go out and do something or my personal experience is with my brother. If I was playing Xbox or if I was outside hanging out with my friends, he would come out and you know, for the fun of it, he would try to disrupt us because he's an older brother and, you know, he wants to be a part of every single little thing I do and make it about him. And I'd get so frustrated with him. I would get so annoyed at what he was doing. And in my mind, in that one second, I'd go, why don't you just go back inside and leave us alone? Because in my mind, I'm not thinking about the fact that we're outside, we're having fun, and he's inside all alone. Or I'm playing on the Xbox It's my turn on it, and I don't want to give it to him. And the fact that he's coming in and trying to take it away, even though maybe I've been on it for two hours, makes me angry. I go, why would you do such a thing to me? How horrible can you be? And then your parents come in and tell you to get off the Xbox or tell you to play nice with your siblings. Or same things with your friends, right? And so tonight, this is going to be our general theme and our general topic as we go into Romans here, is this idea that oftentimes... Something very, very easy, and I think something that's very overlooked in our society, is how easily and quickly we like to judge people from ourselves. And not not necessarily just a judgment, but even to go as far as to say that we condemn them for what they do. And so this happens all of the time. For instance, prime example. One of the very first things that happened tonight when I showed up is somebody looked at my beard. And I bet every single one of you in the room right now just condemn me for my beard. (laughs) My roommates every single day tell me I need to shave it. It's staying until October 31st. I'm going to see what it can do. And at the other time, there are people that encourage me and say, you know what, just keep growing it. Don't listen to other people. It goes both ways. And I'm sure many of you are like, who tells you to keep letting that grow? But we all do this. Whether you're condemning somebody else or judging somebody else for something, think about at school. You go into school, you sit down, and the minute that you sit down, you automatically choose, if you can, who you want to sit by based off of what you know about them. You heard this from that person about Jim, and you don't want to go sit by Jim just because you heard one small thing. Sorry, I'm just using a random name. Toby, Bill, take your pick. Sorry, Jim. But you build up this persona, and based off of it, you kind of judge and condemn them And respond with your whole being on how you act towards them off that one little bit of information that you know. And so you cut yourself off from them. You choose to distance yourself. Think about as you walk down the hallways even. Maybe you see two people arguing and you just sit there and go, why are you guys fighting? Why can't you be friends? Or you go, I don't want a part of that. I don't want to know them because they are always, always angry. And so you judge them. You condemn them for something that you know, just a small portion of them, but don't get the bigger picture. We can look at technology even. I've got technology, I love it, makes my life a little easier. But look at apps. You can look at, uh, we talked even last week about Tinder. I think this is a great example of judging something. You can swipe left and swipe right whether you like something, and it's based off of a photo. I think that's absolutely horrible. You don't know the person, you don't know anything about them, but in one instance you look at them and you automatically cast a judgment on them right off the bat. 
We talked about that some last week as well, and that went in a different direction. But about even something as simple as Facebook. This is something that is now almost universal in all our culture. Do you give that a thumbs up or a thumbs down? Do you give it a like or a dislike? Not only that, but you can mute, you can block people just off of small things that they say. And I think on media, that's one of the easiest places to do it. You go on Instagram and maybe you see someone's photo, maybe you see their post, and you go, oh, why would they post that? And you judge and you condemn them in that one small saying. We all do this in every single day. Probably one of the easiest to do this is our world and our media. You look at the media today, you look at the news, it's everywhere. Some of the biggest dividers in our society is that you look at one small example of something and you apply it to everything else and judge it all based off that. And it causes so much separation amongst people. So much. And so tonight what we're going to be looking at is this idea. And like I said, we're going to be going into Romans. So before we dive in too deep, let's give you guys a little bit of a backdrop behind the history of the Roman church and what's going on here. So first off, the book of Romans itself, you can turn there if you want. Uh, it's written by Paul. If you don't know who Paul is, uh, he's first kind of brought up in the New Testament and the Gospels. Uh, his name was Saul and started going by Paul. Saul was a Pharisee. Actually, he persecuted Jesus and the early Christians, and he was very much against them. Until one day, he actually had an encounter with Jesus after his death and resurrection, and it changed his life and perspective to the point where he became what was called the Apostle Paul, and he was on a mission for what's called the Gentiles. Gentiles were, Gentiles were non-Jewish people in the culture at the time. And so he was on mission for the Gentiles to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with everybody else in the world, and specifically taking it to the Gentile community, which at the time, to the Jewish community, was something that they kind of had friction against. They were opposed to because they were a little bit different. They didn't have this historical context that the Jewish did in terms of their Christianity and the faith, and we'll get a little bit more into that. But as far as what Paul is writing into here when he's speaking to the Roman church, when he's writing to the Roman church, there's a history that's happened with the Jews and the Gentiles specifically in Rome. Uh, right after Jesus' death and resurrection, the emperor at the time, his name was Claudius, he decided that because of all of this big chaos and this big story that's coming up about Christianity and Jesus Christ, that all of the Jews needed to leave Rome. So he exiled all of the Jews from Rome for a time. And so while they were gone, the Gentiles were still there and they still followed after Jesus and they still had their church. And so what happened was after the Jews were exiled and finally came back into Rome, they were trying to come together. But there was friction in this. Because the Jewish community in the Bible, in the Old Testament, was the chosen people by God, the chosen nation to uphold his rule, uphold his law. But that changed in the New Testament. That was a radical change, and it's one of the biggest things today for us that that changed. And so because of that, the Jewish have all these laws, all these rules called Torah, which are the first five books of the Bible, and also a bunch of laws that are given out that they're trying to follow. And the Gentiles... They don't see why they need to follow these. And so when they came together, the Jews look at the Gentiles and they say, oh, well, you're not this law. You're not circumcised. You're not eating kosher. You're not doing dot, 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 dot. Therefore, you're wrong. And they're judging them and condemning them. And it causes a huge disunity within the Roman church to which Paul is trying to address throughout this entire book. And so that's the goal here of the book is he's trying to bring unity back to the Roman church through the gospel of which Jesus Christ saves us. 
And so we're going to go into the introduction here. This is where you can open up your books, go to Romans. We're going to start with the introduction here, Romans 1. We're going to look at verses 8 through 17 here. And so it'll be up on the screens behind me. Uh, You can pull it up on your phone. You can open up your Bible. Uh, But it reads here, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. So with this, Paul hasn't actually been able to go to Rome for a while. He's been going all over traveling and doing missions, and he's been writing time to time to different areas. And so this is the letter of the Roman church, and this is actually towards the end of his kind of career, if you will, before he goes to Rome. So this is shortly before. The key thing that I want to point out here, right in his introduction, is he wants to make it clear in his letter to the Roman church that he is addressing everyone. He says, to all of you. He's not saying just to the Gentiles or just to the Jewish community there. He's addressing all of the church, all in Rome, and he wants to make it clear what he is bringing up here. And so he points out with that that he is constantly remembering them in prayers and that he wants what is good for them and that he may come and serve in the gospel with it. And so it goes on here, verse 11, he continues. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. And so you can look at verse 12 here again. Something that I think is very interesting that Paul does here and points out to the Roman church is that he is coming to them not only to encourage them, and he's not writing this letter just to encourage him, but he is encouraged by them and wants to be encouraged by each other's faith. And it's very, very key there. Going on here, verse 14, he says, I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel so, or also to you who are in Rome. This is the very first time that he brings us up. And I want you guys to look at this. As we go throughout this entire series of Romans, he does this so often. Paul brings this up so many times where he will compare two different sets of people and it is a reoccurring theme throughout it. He says the Greeks and the non-Greeks, the wise and the foolish. Because what he's pointing out here is the disunity. He's saying, I'm not just here for the Greeks or the non-Greeks. I'm not just here for the wise or for the foolish. I'm here for all of you. And it's because of all of you that I'm so eager to preach the gospel. And he points out to you in Rome. He's not going there to preach the gospel to those that are unsaved. He's going there so that way everybody knows the gospel, including those in the Roman church, even if they already know it, because it's something that we need daily. Daily. So then he goes on and he puts the point of the book. And this is the overarching theme that I touched on earlier. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That last bit is huge and we'll get into that actually here in the next couple coming weeks. But the point of this I want you to see is that it is the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First, 
the Jew, then the Gentile. He is coming to share the gospel. That is his, that is his mission. That is what he's been doing. And he is called to the Gentiles and to the Jews. And he wants to have a harvest among them, which is why he is coming. And so, main points here, just a couple little captions. He pointing out a couple things right at the beginning of his letter to the Romans. First, he's pointing out that he has heard about this discord in the church, about the Jewish and the Gentiles communities, and that they're not coming together. That instead they're being divided amongst each other. Uh, and he wants to solve this. And the reason that he's writing to them is to present the gospel to them. So that way this will bring them together. That this will stop the discord amongst the church. One other small point here, uh, as we go through this, if you ever read through all the way to the end, Paul actually hopes even that he will go from Rome and he will be able to have a mission into Spain, which he doesn't quite get to if you've read through the whole story for it. And so with that, we're going to dive actually into our main section. I told you there'd be a lot. That's the history. That's the backdrop. That's the starting of Romans. He's intentionally calling out this people group and saying, listen, I've heard about this. I see it. There is something that's not going right here. And this is where he delves into what that is. And so Romans 2, we're going to go through verse 1 through 16. Maybe go a little fast here. He goes, you, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you pass judgment, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Let that sing for a second. That right there, I think, is a very key point of this. He says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Judgment was never ours to have. And the big issue is that he has two different people groups, both of which God loves and God has called to him. Two different groups that are trying to follow after God, but for whatever reason, due to their judgment of one another based off of either the historical context that they came from or not, there is a discord and it is causing them to hate each other. And it is not good. It is wrong. And the key word there is condemning yourself. Oftentimes, as we go through this, what I want you to think about is that word condemning. There are lots of things you can pass judgment on, not necessarily just people. I love soccer. I think it's a great sport. That is my personal judgment of soccer. It's not necessarily wrong for me to love soccer based off my own experiences with it. But when you are condemning somebody for something, that is not our authority. That's not what we are supposed to do as people. This is something that you can see even at just a worldly level, a non-secular level. We teach it in our grade schools. Don't judge a book by its cover. You should not go up to somebody that you don't know and just say, you're a liar, you're a terrible person, you need to not lie because lying is wrong. Because that's wrong. That's mean. I am a liar. I myself do those exact same things. And so as we continue on here, it goes on, verse 2 here. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, 
not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. This was a problem that was brought up in the community of them. Like we talked about earlier with driving, you think for whatever reason during rush hour when you're on the road, you're in the right. You're a good driver. You know what you're doing. You've got it together. And because of that, they must be wrong. They need to step up. They need to do something better. They need to fix themselves in some way. And right here, what Paul is getting at when he says, contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, is that we are trying sometimes to use the fact that we are doing good, that we are doing right, to inflate ourselves with pride, and we use that to judge others wrongly. We say, oh, I'm a Christian. I don't tell lies. You need to stop doing that. It's It's wrong. It's evil. And we tell them that and we judge them off that. And we'll distance ourselves from them because of that. But that's not right. That's not why God gives us that kindness, that forbearance, and that patience of his. It is because at the end of that that it says, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. God gives us grace and mercy and love, kindness, patience, forbearance because he wants us to look inwardly on ourselves, not others. Not looking at other people, but look at yourself. He wants you to look at what you do, what you have done, and say that's not right. And so we continue on in here and it says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. It is not an easy thing to go throughout a day and to not judge somebody for something they've done. Not condemn them for something that you've seen and push them away from you. Push them out of your life because of it. It is hard. It is hardwired into us to do this. It takes persistence to do this. Persistence in doing what is good. And if you are persistent in that, Paul says, to this you are given eternal life. He goes on though, but for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jews, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, than for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Here when he says law, what Paul is referring to again is the Torah from earlier. He's bringing up that there were rules put in place by God. They were laid out. These were things to do and not to do. And this is what the Jewish community knew. But he refers to it also in another way here. He says, for it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And the reason he brings this up is in the next verse, verse 14. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. God has a righteous judgment. And just knowing what's right to do 
Just knowing what's good to do isn't what will make you right with God. It's those who do it. Those who look at themselves and go, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I am judging other people based off of this because I've heard it, but I don't do it myself. Those people, those people don't understand the righteousness and the judgment of God. But instead, here it goes on, their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. The Gentiles may not have known all of the Jewish law. They may not have studied it. They didn't grow up with the historical context of being God's chosen people. But when Jesus Christ came back and died on the cross, he changed all of that. Everybody in the world has it written on their hearts what is wrong. And that's why we feel guilty after we judge someone. Driving on the road, we know that it's wrong for me to look at that person and just go, why can't you hurry it up? Or our friends in school that we say, why did you say that? Why did you do that? Why did you choose to go and hang out with those people? It's not right. There's something in us, in our hearts, that tells us it's not right because it's not our place to judge. It's not our place to do that. And this last verse here concludes by showing us whose authority it is. It says, this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Can you throw up the my trial slide? Just the plain one. Guys, the reason that I chose this background and that for the title is because oftentimes we want to act like we're in a courtroom. We're up on, the, thr- we're up on the, the throne, the seat. We have the gavel in our hand, and we decide what's right and wrong, and we like to cast out our judgment for other people and decide that for them for their lives. But that's not how it works. One day, we will stand at the bottom of that, and God will be the judge. Specifically, Jesus Christ will be our judge. And he will be the fairest and most just judge we could ever hope for because he came down to earth. He knew exactly all the hardships that you went through, every little thing. He doesn't see it as just the front cover of a book. He doesn't see it as just that car that drove by. He sees it as everything. He says every moment you went through, every struggle you had, and he understands it because he went through the same things. He prevailed, though. He knew what it was to live a perfect life. And he understands your pain. Because of that, he is the most fair, just judge that we could ever have. He writes this to the Romans because he wants them to come together under unity. To stop judging one another, stop condemning one another for their differences. But look at what Jesus Christ did. Look at what his death and resurrection meant for themselves. And love one another instead, despite that. He says, leave that to Jesus because he is fair. He is just. We are not. Our judgment is not based on truth. God's is. And so as we wrap up here, as we come to our conclusions, I want you to think about these things. Think about in your day how easily it can be for you to judge somebody else. Why do you do it? What is it in you that causes you 
to lash out with that and tell somebody something hurtful based off of your own judgment. How can you stop that? We need to trust in God's righteous judgment, not our own. Let God decide what is right and wrong, not ours. This is, I think, at the root of our society, in every part of the world. You can go back and you can look at Genesis. And one of the very first things that happens after they have eaten of the fruit, Adam and Eve, is Adam turns to Eve and goes, or God comes to Adam and Adam says, she did it. It's her fault that we did this. He judges her. He casts judgment that's not his to have. And there's a punishment for that. It is in us and it has been in us. And it's not easy. It requires perseverance to fight every single day, being in the gospel, being in the gospel. And so as we go to groups, what I want you guys to think about, what I want you to talk about and challenge each other with, is how can you change your life so that way you look at others, not out of judgment, but out of kindness, out of love, out of patience. Let's pray.